Well, tonight I want to share with you a message that's a little bit different in its creation or even structure than I think I've ever shared before. Uh, We have about 40 different guys going through one of our discipleship methods, not the only one, but one of them where we center in on five questions that Jesus asks and we, we look at who Jesus is to us that day and what it is he's been doing. We want to join him in that action and we are trying to listen to him through his word and we begin to see, Jesus, how could we obey what it is you're saying to us and then realizing our dependence upon him and our need for his power. And in doing that, sometimes we may end up taking the same verse and walk through it for a week and and actually tonight's message, the teaching, uh, is been written, whether they know it or not, by 20 different guys from that gathering. And uh, so I'm going to have all 20 of those guys come up and give them about 20 minutes apiece. And so we'll be done about 1 o'clock this morning. Uh, so I hope you brought a snack. If not, there's a bunch of bread left over in the, the uh, workroom. We can get you some, some bread today. But I, I guess instead of doing it that way, uh, while they have contributed to all this on the insights that the Lord has put in their heart this week, fresh, brand new manna from the Lord, I'm, I'm compiling in wanting to share what Jesus has been doing in us. And so, Daryl, at any point, if you want to jump up and start preaching, you just come right in. But uh, earlier this week, uh, Daryl shared, and we all began to study with him a passage of Scripture that the Lord had put on his heart. And it's in Psalm uh, 73. If you take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 73, I want us to zero in on not just what God has already said to us this week, but I believe what he wants to breathe on and give life to us today. Jesus, I ask that you'll take the thoughts of my brothers, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts here tonight, and it's our desire that you'll be pleased. And not so much that you're grading us and you hope our vocabulary is a certain way or our rhyme or rhythm or our thought structure is a certain way, but, but Lord, we know your word tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. So, Lord, it's our desire that we don't just get this, but we can be gotten by this psalm and that we can be obedient to you through it. So would you help us now? In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're looking at a psalm that was written by Asaph. It's not David, and some of the psalms are written by other psalmists. And this is one of those that if you have not read psalm 73 or you can't remember reading it if it doesn't stand out to you i want to warn you this is some awesome stuff so if you hope that you could just kind of sit back kick back not really engage too much and just have a little short little talk and just kind of move about the day i hate to spoil your plans but i believe this is one that is so relevant to us today that just leaps off the page i think you'll find it doesn't take a whole lot of extended application to see where this hits us right between the eyes. Asaph gives his reality right up front. And this reality is just kind of what he's experiencing, what he's living. He finds himself in this very real dilemma. He starts with this statement of faith in verse 1 of God's goodness. And those, how God is good to them who are 
faithful to him. It's a statement of faith. It's kind of this, this opening thought of how good God is to those who trust him. Surely God is good. However, we'll soon see that the reality of his life, at least from his perspective, seems to contradict this initial faith statement. Well, what is this reality? What is it he's seen in his life? He has this coming to grips with what appears to be bad people living however they want to, and yet they are prospering, while good people seem to be suffering on the margins of his world. I suggest tonight that Asaph, this psalm that he's given to us, it's, it's very fitting for us today, and it's much like what we see in our current cultural context. Too often we see the wicked prospering. Dictators strut across the stage of history, raping and pillaging like barbarians, and yet it appears that there's no major consequence for them. Financial empires are built on the backs of the poor and the hungry. As in television dramas where the evil villain seems to win in the end, so it is happening where people are leaving the honest and the upright in the dust, doing whatever they want. I don't know if you've ever felt like that or if you get done watching CNN or Fox News or whatever news outlet you watch and you begin to say, is there any justice left? Is there any truth left? What is going on around us? Everything seems to be falling apart. Have you ever felt like maybe your statement of faith that you begin your day with, that you start with, is threatened by what you seem to be experiencing? It's not that you you have not claimed it. It's not that you haven't believed it. It's just what you're experiencing seems to go right in the face of what you just said that you believe. Let's look at Psalm 73 together, and we're going to walk through this passage. So let's look at verse 1 through 3, a psalm of Asaph. Surely. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my footing, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He starts this out with this initial faith statement. You know, God is surely good to everybody, but then he begins to see what is happening around him, and it, it's his focus is shifting from God to, to the man around him, and, and things begin to look really bad. In essence, the summary that I get from, from the guys I've been talking to this week, it's almost as if Asaph was saying, God, it's so unfair. It's not fair. God... This doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem right. This positive confession in verse 1 from Asaph of God's goodness immediately evokes a negative admission later. It's this thought that, God, you are unfair. And that's really Asaph's complaint. That's what he's complaining to the Lord. He's lifting up to the Lord. And if you're taking notes, letter A, that's, that's Asaph's complaint. The complaint is this admission that, that he's losing his footing, he's about to stumble, he's knocked over at the sight of how unjust and unfair things are around him. It's not just a, a casual observation, he says, huh, that just didn't seem right. No, it, it disturbs him so much, it shakes him to his very core. Have you ever felt knocked over by how unfair a situation seems? It just grabs your attention. Maybe it's something you're watching on the news, or maybe it's something you're experiencing in the workplace. Maybe it's in your own family. You've seen it for generation upon generation. It just seems unfair. You're sick and tired of it, and you just want to cry out with the same complaint, God, it's unfair. 
You know, God never told us life would be fair. In fact, today I've been thanking God that life is not fair. You see, if life was fair and we all got what we deserved, then I would be getting hell. And so would you. None of us is getting what we truly deserve if we're trusting in Jesus Christ and that what we get that we don't deserve is called grace. But yet when it's applied to someone else or some other situation, when we begin to see this injustice or something that's not fair, there's something that wells up inside of us. At least I could bear witness with what Asaph is saying. It it, it seems very familiar to what will bubble up in my own heart. See, I get so excited, I'm about to knock my Bible over. It just bubbles up inside of me that that I, I get aggravated. It can take my thoughts for the whole day in another direction. And as Asaph put it, he about lost his footing. He was slipping because he was so knocked over by it. We can connect with this complaint because we see similar things around us. People who seem to get ahead, that take all the shortcuts, ignoring all the rules, and at times it feels like it's at our own expense. What happened to Asaph here is typical of us as well. He shifts his focus from the goodness of God in verse 1, and he shifts it to the evil of man. That's where his attention is going. He becomes now envious and jealous of the bold men and women who prosper in their wickedness. Envy is an interesting thing. It grows in you like a fast-moving virus. And there is, there is this consequence there is this outcome this is their this reaction to his attention moving from god to man it begins to infect every part of you coating your entire being with this desire to have what they have even if it costs them everything it's an attitude that says i want what i want no matter the cost it's it's envious of what's going on around them and and first it's what they're doing wrong and then it's what i want instead Something is happening here in these two verses. At this line in the Psalms, Asaph is letting us in on his personal journal. Now, as I've read this a number of times this week, I really think that there is kind of this hidden tone where Asaph's saying, let me tell you what I've been thinking, but it's going to end good. But I've got to let you see where I've been. I don't know if you've ever tried the the discipline of journaling or, or spiritual charting out or, or making bullet points and tracking where you're at with the Lord. But one of the great benefits of this is you can begin to see patterns. You can begin to see what God has been doing in you, and it can even be your praise later. And In essence, I think this psalm is, is like a journal entry for Asaph that we're catching to see his true heart and what God does with it. We begin to see in this journal entry That there's a shift taking place. His heart begins to change in this shift. It's this change from focusing on God to man. But let's read together as we see Asaph. He is stockpiling detailed evidence of his complaint. He's not just willy-nilly throwing this out to the Lord. He's going to give him specifics of how upset he is about it. Let's look at verse 3 through 12. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens of common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity, evil conceits of their minds, know no limits. 
they scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. What's happening here? In this next little section of his journal entry, we begin to see that it's not just a complaint anymore. He's sharing his view. This is Asaph's view of, of God. Don't you see how bad they are? Don't you see how bad the people are? I've given you my complaint, but do you really see? Are you looking? Are you noticing, God? It's wicked out there. It's evil out there. It is not right. In short, he's saying, God, I think you're blind to this. God, I think you're missing something. Surely you would have done something about this. And then in verse 4 and 5, his view, so passionate about it, is obviously from a distance skew. Look at what he says. They have no struggles. They're always healthy. Well, we know that's not true. His enemies, his oppressors were human. Every human is still subject to the same illness and sickness that every other one would be. But it's as if he can see that everything that bad that happens is happening to him and and anything that's good that's happening is happening to those who are evil. And, And God, it's as if they can't even get sick. It's as if that nothing can go wrong for them. They never have a bad hair day. They never ever have bad breath. They never ever have the illnesses that I am stricken with. God, it is not fair. Don't you see how bad they really are? But you see, it's not just this crazy exaggeration from Asaph. It's from his vantage point. Where he is standing, that is what he is seeing. You see, it's worth noting that Where you stand determines what you see. We're going to come back to that point in in a little bit. But where you stand, it will determine what you see. And where he is standing, this is all he can see in this injustice. Verse 6 and 7. He's saying, God, look, they're doing really bad stuff. They even boast about violence. They they clothe themselves. They don't try to hide it and cover it up. They they brag about it. They brag about how violent they, they can be. They're cold and calloused and they pouring out of these iniquities, these evil deeds. It seems to be limitless. There's no end to what they would do. In verse 8, God, they don't just act against you. They're speaking against us, God. They even threaten us with oppression. In other words, God, you might be okay with turning their eyes away and just letting this take place, but it's affecting me, God. It's... It's coming down on me. What they're saying is affecting me. They're threatening oppression to me. God, don't you see it? This sounds a lot like the day in which we live. We can look at our society's attack on the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of life, the attack of political structures that seems to be against the freedom of religion and church. We can look around the globe and the attack and the seem to have very little regard for human life as a whole and any freedom that God would give to individuals around the globe. It's threatened in many places. We can begin to see the, the uh, wickedness and the, the evil, lustful thoughts that permeate all kinds of media around our culture. You could pick any place, work, home, local, state, uh, 
global. It just seems everywhere. It's oppressing on us. And it's as if we could say, what are we to do about all this? I don't know if it sounds familiar to you, but to me it seems a lot like what I just would read on the internet from the news blurb that comes up. Verse 9 and 11. Now God, they speak as if they're going to receive this heavenly reward. They talk like they're a believer. They talk like they're a follower in you. They talk like they're religious. They say these things. One of my brothers this week shared how they can't help but watch in this political season that it seems just like every candidate is claiming that they are God's candidate. I'm not telling you which candidate to choose and all that silliness, but it was just an easy on-ramp to see that at election time, everybody is a wonderful God-fearing person. But yet at the same time, they claim ownership, things of this world, and, and out of the same mouth comes this lip service to God, and yet their own agenda taking the lead. And that's exactly what Asaph is saying. He's saying, hey, look, God, look what they're saying. It's affecting us. Look how bad they are. God, the people around them, they're drinking it up. They're just accepting it as the gospel truth. They're getting lost. They're being led. And they're being led by the blind. God, don't you see how bad they are? In verse 12, he closes this section with a summary. Okay, God, I've given you evidence This is what they're like. They're carefree. I don't know about you, but it's easy to look at someone else's life and see how they just have it perfect. Carefree, no problems. But I'll let you in on a secret. No matter who you're looking at, no matter what is on the outside of their life, everybody's carrying their own bag of rocks. Oh, some may hide it better than others. Some may not have experienced the full weight of it at a particular season of their life. That may be true. But everybody in time will carry their own bag of rocks, their own hurt, their own pain, their own injustice, the weight of their own sin. And when we begin to take this viewpoint, it's true to where we stand, but it is not from where God stands. We begin to get lost in this overwhelming feeling. Now, Asaph turns from his complaint and from his viewpoint, and really begins to waller in his disgust. Look at verse 13 through 15. It gets even more depressing. You'll be so glad we're talking about this. It's just even more depressing. Look at verse 13 and 15. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed your children. In other words, God, what's the point? It's all for nothing. This is Asaph's reaction. He he complains. He is sharing from his vantage point, his viewpoint, what he sees, these detailed evidences of what's going wrong. And then it's his own personal reaction to his own observation, his own focus of his mind. It takes this turn. His reaction is one that totally gets the best of him. His focus has left God, and it's now stewing on what he sees in men and women around him. And he's giving voice to this thought of just giving up. Surely God, keeping my heart pure before you, all the work I've done to try to be pure and live right before you, it's all worth nothing, God. I'm washing my hands of trying to be innocent and to deal with the guilt of my sin. It's it's worthless, God. 
It's been plugging me all day and all night. All I can think about is how unjust it is for me and everything I've tried to do to live for you. It's useless. I don't know if you would phrase it that way or not. Maybe you've experienced some very intense moments, but this happens in varying degrees. Have you ever felt tempted to just throw in the towel? It's your, your faith statement is there. You start with saying God is good. You start with saying he is faithful to his people. But your reality gives birth to your own complaint, gives birth to your own viewpoint, gives birth to now this reaction that says, it's pointless. I, I believe it, but God, it's unfair. Don't you see how bad they are? It's pointless. That's where Asaph is. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by the evil around you? Been so let down by another person? Felt that you could not help but focus on the bad around you? That, it's just not worth continuing on. That problem comes, that person persists, that pain continues. Where is God? It's so unfair. It doesn't appear that He even sees it. I've been working so hard God, to be good in your sight, and I feel like it's worth nothing. I just want to give up. Now, as I told you, this psalm is starting to get very depressing, but don't give up in reading. It's the good part that comes next, and let's, let's look at this pretty exciting part. In fact, if you only get one thing from tonight, I hope that you catch this next point. This is the heart of it all. This is why we have spent time walking through this. It is right here. That's why we walk through all of this. That's what Asaph's reality was, what he saw, what he complained about, what he threw his hands up in the air over. But he's about to have an encounter with God that changes everything. Let's look at verse 16 and 17 where we find this encounter that there's another shift that takes place again. Asaph shares, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. In other words, he's saying, God, I'm trying to make sense of all the stuff that I've thrown out to you, but it is crushing me. It is caving in on me. This is Asaph's honesty. He's getting really honest before the Lord. And and it's not just his complaint anymore. It's not just his viewpoint. But I believe we'll see in a second that there's evidence that the Lord is actually giving him clarity and is able to, to honestly Share his heart before the Lord of what's actually going on. Asaph gets honest with God. He gets honest with himself. God, when I'm trying to understand what I have told you, it's killing me. It's crushing me. It's oppressing me. This insight that came from the Lord is starting a shift in Asaph. A shift for the good. When he says, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood. In other words, letter B, it's as if he's saying, God, being in your presence, it's changing me. This is the miracle that comes for Asaph. There is a miraculous thing, just as if you would see a lame hand become straight or a blind eye begin to see. There is this heart that is in deep pain that is beginning to be healed. And there's a change that's taking place because of what God is doing in him. It's a powerful change. This is where we begin to see the heart of this whole message that's weaved together. That there is a a power in sitting in the presence of God. It can and it will change you. He had his eye on man. 
Now as he sits in the sanctuary with God, everything begins to change. Now I want to chew on this word sanctuary. We talked about this with some of our guys this week. I remember when I first thought of the word sanctuary, or remember using it as a kid, sanctuary just meant a place where I couldn't wear a hat because I was a boy and I couldn't run. And I didn't like that very much. I wanted to run everywhere and I just liked to wear a hat. And then as I got to be a teenager, I pushed back on some of those thoughts, and I, I thought, well, if, I, if David could dance naked before the Lord, surely he's not offended by my baseball hat, and, and surely if we can play basketball in a multi-purpose place, then that can't be it. And I began to press and find the limits and, and my own frustrations with, with our idea of sanctuary. But as I grew older, I began to see that there is a value in this, and we don't want to lose this place of sanctuary. And what this really is, it's a, it's a set-apart place and time, space and time, to sit in the presence of God. It's not so much about the room or even about that hour or that day or that time as much as it is as I have chosen to set this apart for God, set this time and space apart for Him to do His work in me. And I'm choosing to be there. And this is what brings about this change for Asaph. As he sits in the sanctuary, set apart time and space for God, that something begins to happen in his heart. He begins to focus on Him. He begins to worship Him. That's ascribing worth to God. That's when Asaph brought himself to this set-apart time and place that this change began to happen. Let's look at verse 21 through 26. We'll see the evidence of this change. This sounds like a totally different guy. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant I was a brute beast before you. I love that part. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's a miraculous shift in his words, a miraculous shift in his thought life. There's this new perspective that we see. Remember the thought that I shared just a moment ago, that where you stand determines what you see. See, Asaph is now standing in the presence of God, and he's beginning to see something new. Where he is standing is changing what he sees. In other words, it's saying, God, I now see how bad I have been. This is Asaph's revelation something's revealed to him that he couldn't see on his own that god is giving him new revelation and it first starts in him about him now it's interesting to me that he first was so focused on how bad they were what they were doing what was wrong with them but now his revelation is not about them he sees how bad he has been he says my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered ever felt that you had a bitter spirit, that your heart was grieved, that the Lord was showing you, hey, what is growing inside of you? He goes on in these very descriptive words, I was senseless and ignorant. It takes a lot of humility to admit that you are senseless and ignorant. But then a whole other chapter to go and say, I was a brute beast before you. God, I'm just a wild animal before you in my attitude. God, thank you for showing me the truth about what I am thinking, about what I am saying, about what I am doing. God, I need to be in your presence. The change starts there for him. And it's a pretty powerful change. 
ever come to the realization of how bad your attitude has been when you sit in the presence of God? One of the reasons I think the enemy loves to take worship gatherings and get us so distracted on our own preferences, not just to cause division in the church, though that's an issue, but bigger than that, bigger than you know, arguments of what song to sing and what color the carpet should be and how we should do, bigger than that is the fact that you get focused on someone else's problem and not allowing God to give you and, and me revelation on what's going on in our own heart. You see, when I enter into worship and I'm, I'm so focused in on what you should do and what you should get, I miss what he is saying to me. And as I focus in on him, it reflects back on me. There is hope and healing for Asaph. This is not some kind of burden he has to carry. This is a blessing he has been given. In this revelation, we see that things couldn't get better until God changed Asaph. And Asaph could not change until God gave him clarity on what he was really like. Now, this self-revelation turns to something beautiful. Look at verse 23 and 26 through 26. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What we see here, it's in essence he's saying, God, you are now so good to me. Where before it was God, it's so unfair, but God, you're so good to me. And Asaph receives grace from the Lord. Here this senseless, ignorant, brute beast of a man before God, even in those stages, he says, God, you held my hand. In all my ignorance, in all of my senselessness, in all of my wild beast of an attitude, you didn't leave me. You counseled me. You, you guided me. And you're going to lead me to glory with you. The grace he receives. And then he ends that little section by saying, God, I may fail, my flesh may fail, but my strength is in you. I'm not having confidence in in myself. I'm having confidence in you, God. You're my portion. You're my provision. You're my bread forever. This is a recipe for worship, friends. If you really want to have an encounter with Jesus, if you want to have a shift in your life that no matter what is going on, when you come to worship, don't wait till you feel encouraged had another one of my brothers this week in, a, in another Bible study gathering that we had. He shared what the Lord was teaching him when he said, you know, I, I'm learning that I shouldn't wait to encourage somebody until I feel encouraged. I should just begin to encourage them. And I was chewing on that. The Lord used that to speak to me. And I was chewing on that. You know, I shouldn't wor- wait to worship God until I understand everything or until I feel like it or until people recognize me the way I want to be recognized. But I worship God in the midst of my senseless, ignorant, brute beast of an attitude. This is the the Luke 15 prodigal son passage where the son was rehearsing his prayers and he said, Surely my my father's hired hands did did, did not deserve all these things and they eat better than than me and, and... And maybe I could just come home, and and when he comes home trying to get himself cleaned up, the father runs to him, wraps his arms around him, and says, No, son, I'm going to take you right where you are at. But in worship, I believe that sometimes we think, Well, I've got to get my life cleaned up. I've got to get my attitude right. No, no, friend, we can't have any hope. We can't have any change in our situation until we sit in his presence and allow him to do the work. 
Now, where does all this end? A final thought. We see a new reality for Asaph. That was his old reality. Here's the new reality in rapid fire. It's going to go quick. Verse 28. Three parts to this verse. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. That first part. In essence, he's saying, God, your presence makes all the difference. This is Asaph's dependence. When he gets honest before God, there's a revelation to him about himself. There's the grace that God gives. And now he recognizes he is totally dependent on the Lord. Your presence makes all the difference for me, Jesus. I can see it, what you're doing in my life. It's good for me to be near you. I have to have it. I depend on it. When I'm feeling ripped off, it's good for me to be near you, God. When I'm feeling left out, it's good for me to be near you, God. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, it's good for me to be near you. When I'm feeling full of myself, it's good for me to be near you. Friend, you and I need to be near God to make time and space to sit at the feet of our Lord. Look at the second part of verse 28. One of my other brothers this week, this leapt out for him. Actually, it was two different brothers on two different days. He said, Brady, uh, looks like a choice is here to me. Verse 28b, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. In other words, God, I have chosen to take refuge in your sovereignty. Asaph has a choice here. We have to choose to make the sovereign Lord our sovereignty. He's not going to force us to take refuge in him, but he chose, Asaph chose this. You and I have the same part to play just like Asaph had. What are you and I choosing today? In the final part of verse 28, I will tell of your deeds. In other words, my paraphrase, God, I can't keep quiet about how good you are. This is Asaph's testimony. Now, when you read 28C and you read verse 2 and 3, it's two ends of the spectrum. God, you're so unfair. This isn't right. I can't keep quiet about it anymore. I'm losing my footing. It's so wrong. God, you are so good to me. You are so gracious to me. You're so loving. I got to tell everybody. Is this guy like unstable? Is he mentally off? I would suggest he is right down the middle, normal, human, and Jesus makes all the difference for you and I this way. When we see God Almighty in His presence, He changes our perspective. Where you stand changes what you see. And as Asaph stood in the sanctuary with God, God began to reveal things to him in his honest heart and began to change things in him. And he saw hope. So what do we do with this? I... I want to end with three questions for you and we'll take off. When and where are you entering the sanctuary with God? Uh, Brady, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. Oh, okay, sure, maybe. But you know, you can come into this room and not enter the sanctuary of God. You can stand here behind this pulpit and not enter the sanctuary of God. When are you and I taking time on purpose to say, God, I'm here sitting at your feet. 
I want to create space and time for you. Not my ritual, not my habit, not my desire, not my own agenda. I'm going to come and sometimes my senseless, ignorant, brute beast of an attitude before you. But I'm here to be in your sanctuary. Just like it's possible to be in this room and not be in the sanctuary of God. Surely it is possible to be here and in the sanctuary of God. But that opens it up. You can have this at home. One of my brothers on another week talks about there's a room in their house they've dedicated to prayer. What a great thing. A lot of homes have a man cave. My first apartment when we got married, we were in marriage housing at Grand Apartments at Olivet Nazarene University. I quickly discovered most of the things that I brought into this apartment, into our marriage, did not even make it into the house. It was just a closet. It was a little broom closet, and I put a little camping chair. I would sit in there with a black and white 9-inch TV, and I just thought, this is my space. Then we got a house. I thought, surely I could upgrade from the closet, but I saw that my things didn't even make it into the house. They were in the garage. And made one more move, and I don't even know where my stuff is anymore. It's, it's gone. We can have all kinds of set-apart space for our man cave, for our stuff, for our hobby, whatever it may be, but is there a, a place where you set apart space and time... It's not about if you can wear a hat or if you can run, but it's all about, can I, can I focus in on God? As much as I push back on some of those things as an adolescent and, and I begin to push back on them theologically, I want to welcome some in. Just like we need to be careful that we don't allow legalism to come into our idea of sanctuary with God, maybe we also need to ask the question, is there anything that's set apart or separate or different in our time with God? Is it the exact same thing as when I'm chowing on nachos and chips at the ball game as I am in the presence of God? Is there any reverence that I have? Not because it's something I can't bring into this, but is there any difference in my heart? Is there any recognition of who I'm standing before, who I'm laying on my face before, who I'm there? God, I need to be in your presence. When and where are you entering the sanctuary? Second is a two-part thought. Focusing on people and problems of this world will leave you with a distorted view of God and will leave you feeling cheated. If you start finding yourself being frustrated with your brothers and sisters, frustrated with mankind, frustrated with the political process, so frustrated with things around, friend, if you're focusing on people and the problems of this world, you'll have a distorted view of God. One of my other brothers this week said, you know, Brady, I'm beginning to see that Asaph, when he began to see God through other people, so he looked at other people, his view of God was all messed up. But when he began to look at God, his view was corrected, and he saw people the way that God saw them. That leads to the second part here. Focusing on God and his sovereignty will give you a new vision of yourself and a new vision of others and will lead you to the blessings of God. Well, that's the end of the 20-man written sermon. But I hope it's not the end of what God wants to do with us in this passage. So as we close tonight, I want to invite you to stand with me. In about 78 seconds, we'll all be on our way to wherever we're going to go. But as we stand together, I want to ask you to ask the Lord... A question that my brothers ask every week. Jesus, what would it be like for me to be obedient to the words that I've just read in your scripture? Maybe obedience may look like for you to 
get honest about what you're really feeling. Maybe it's to recognize that where your focus is determines what you see. Maybe it's to give yourself grace. Maybe there's someone here today that Jesus is saying, you need to recognize that you can be senseless, ignorant, a brute beast, and I'm still going to hold your hand. I'm still going to guide you. But it's so good to be in the sanctuary. Maybe it's the question of, do I have sanctuary with God? Obedience for me this week on this passage for Brady has been this. I felt the Lord say to me, Brady, this is exactly why I'm calling you and the brothers that are around you to spend on-purpose time sitting at the feet of Jesus, creating space and time for Him. It's good for my heart to do that with my brothers. God begins to change something in me when I hear Him speak not only to me, but to me through you. And tonight, speaking to you through my brother. But let's... Maybe stop analyzing and just ask Jesus to speak to us. So would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the words you have given to us. Right from the beginning was the word. You were there. At the end, you will be there. Jesus, you are the living word. You've inspired the written word. Lord, as we take in this truth that first came to Asaph, that went to the original hearers, the children of God in Israel, to generations before us of Christ's followers, to now us, would you help us see not just a new factoid, but how we could be obedient to you in this Jesus? I thank you, Lord, for holding our hand for guiding us and counseling us. Thank you for your grace. But Lord, I'm hungering that you will change me and any of my brothers and sisters who desire the same to get our eyes off of what is so unjust around us, but on you and begin to see the the grace gift of what we don't deserve you've given to us that helps us see our world differently. I just thank you for the gift this week of hearing you speak to me through my other brothers is a blessing to me, Jesus. I receive that. I ask that it will be a blessing to those here tonight as well. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen.